and uh, thank you for listening in to this. Um, I've called it Interesting Monday. Um, I've previously called my pod podcast Exciting Tuesday, Phenomenal Wednesday. This is an interesting Monday and it's interesting because we have four key people in this room joining me today to speak about bereavement and maternity policy. Each person has a unique and significant contribution to make and I really want us to listen with our hearts and our minds about what they're saying and what we can do from a maternity policy perspective to help to improve the journey and experiences of women partners and their wider families who use maternity care and have experienced bereavement, be that early pregnancy loss, pregnancy loss um, that is late and um, any other experience that they bring to the table. So we have, first of all, um, Lisa Ramsey, we have Hayley, we have David, and we have Jess in the room. And they have esteemed knowledge because they have lived experiences. So I'm not going to speak for very long, but I just want to contextualise this by saying to the listeners that you've heard this before, we have maternity policy. It's an exciting time to be in maternity today. Why? Because we're three years into Better Birth, a report of the National Maternity Review, and underpinning that review is a campaign to reduce mortality, morbidity, and avoidable brain injury by 50% by 2025. And to do that and meet that ambition, along with all the amazing recommendations of Better Births, we need to listen to key people about bereavement experience and uh, maternity outcomes. So I'm not going to go any further than that. I'm going to introduce you to um, Lisa, who may well want to say something about her role at NHS England and how it's in really important to listen to women and their families, partners who use our maternity service and have experienced bereavement. Lisa. Thank you, Jackie. Um, yes, I, I think um, it's really important for us to remain mindful that um, the journey of pregnancy, birth and early days um, after birth whether that's with a, a baby or not, um, are absolutely life-changing. And particularly when there is a loss involved, that experience absolutely shapes people um, for the rest of their, of their lives. And it's really critical that we consider not just the outcomes, but the experience um, that people using our maternity services are having. So I'm really excited to be here today and to hear all of your voices and to ensure that your voices are heard across our maternity systems. Thank you, Lisa. So I'm going to introduce um, one of our key speakers. Um, I haven't given full names, so I'm now going to do that. So we have uh, Jessica Claspy-Monk in the room and Jessica will say a little bit about her, her um, experience. We have David, David Montaf in the room and he will share a little bit about his experience and we have Hayley uh, Lation too. And so we, we're missing one person and, and that is James Tipcombe. So James 
uh, was an integral part of delivering this uh, podcast, but unfortunately he's not able to be with us today. But I'm sure James will be kept up to speed with uh, the discussion that we have and indeed have a comment about um, uh, the podcast once we publish the hyperlink. So I'm going to go to... Who should I go to first? <laughs> uh, Jess, uh, first of all, do you want to just share a little bit about um, your experience and why you think that I've invited you here as one of our key experts, actually? I'm not sure why you've invited me, but I'm very grateful. Um, so me and my wife went through um, sort of five rounds of fertility treatment before I first fell pregnant um, back in 2015. Um and that in itself is a, a whole different story and journey, I think, for people. Um, but Leo was um, a very standard, normal pregnancy, I think, um, because he was conceived through IVF. We were under consultant-led care um, and no major concerns were found up until the point that he died. So that was really our first indication that anything untoward was happening and we it, we were too late really to do anything to to prevent it um so he died when I was 37 weeks plus one um which I think is quite a a cruel time to die in pregnancy if you know every time is pretty cruel in that but he was born um three days later at the John Radcliffe in Oxford and since then I think I've just been compelled to speak about him and what he's taught us. And we told him when we were still in hospital that we would do what we could to help, not just other people going through it, but the organisations that helped us. Um, so that's really key for me to be able to just sort of filter that conversation in. And I've kept doing that um, since, and I'm not really sure there's a way to stop um, speaking about, about what we've learned. We went on to have um, an early miscarriage following a frozen embryo transfer um, about five months after Leo was born. Um, and then four months or so after that, I fell pregnant for the third time in that year. Um, again, following a frozen from our last frozen embryo from Leo's cycle. Um, and Eli is now two and a half years old. Um, so I've learned a hell of a lot, I think, about maternity services from my own perspective going through fertility treatment, uh, miscarriage, stillbirth, pregnancy after loss in particular, um, which is rather educational. Um, and just try and do what I can to, I think, facilitate conversations happening around this topic. I think it's so important that we just hear from more and more people. Um, yeah, so that's, that's me, I guess. <laughs> can I ask you if you think we're making the, an impact in the right places in maternity care across England? Obviously, you'll speak from your own perspective. Yeah, I was going to say, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to comment in too much detail on that because I, I don't know, but I think we're going in the right direction. I think what's important is that that direction is, is hitting all communities to the same degree or more so where perhaps there's greater need. Um, and I, I would guess that that's probably not quite where we want to be on that at this moment. Um, I still hear when I speak to bereaved parents, mostly online, um, of those disparities that are happening across the country. And I know across the NHS there will be that postcode lottery, um, but I think it's really clear in bereavement, not just in prevention, but also in the care that we're getting. Mm -hmm 
once somebody is bereaved. Um, and again, that disparity against different types of loss, I think, is really key. I would say my care in hospital was worse having a six-week miscarriage than it was having a 37-week stillbirth. Mm. And I would expect most people wouldn't imagine it to be that way, given the level of incidence and sort of commonality of miscarriage. Mm. Really, really good point. Um, absolutely. Uh, thanks, Jess. Shall we um, uh, hear from David? So, uh, yes, yeah, so I am... Um... A father, I only make girls is the thing that we've discovered. Um, I have four girls, uh, Alana who's eight, and then Grace would be five. She died at 41 plus. All of, My wife's uh, natural gestation is a long one. So all of our children are 41 plus. With that, and that's our normal. Um, and I'm gonna come back to that at some point. But uh, so yeah, there was Grace. And since Grace, we've had Kira and Alyssa. Alyssa's 16 months and uh, my wife went into labour with her on Star Wars Day, uh, so I said, no pressure, but you've got 24 hours to deliver this baby, certainly kind of Star Wars theme name. 24 and a half hours later, the baby was born on International Day of the Midwife, which, oh, wow. to be fair, I'm quite happy with. Um, what happened to Grace, we realised, so uh, my wife had started contractions at some point between uh, the waters breaking and the midwife arriving, to because we were going for a home birth, uh, at some point between the midwife arriving and that, uh, it would turn out that the membranes of the sac wrapped itself around the cord and cut off the blood supply, which researchers showed me never happens. So for us, that was a freak accident, which no one could have done anything about, which makes me, where my anger flares up is when we look at the amount of cases something could have been done about. And I get mm. quite passionate about that. We should not, in a country such as ours, we like to call ourselves a developed country, we use the word first world, and I've got, you can't see, I've got my fingers up in. Um, that, 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 shouldn't, that shouldn't be happening mm. now. Um, um, we also had to deal with the fact that we had a three-year-old who was not stupid, who knew what was happening. We have to deal with the fact of the children born since and how to deal with that. So there's so many, uh, so many little threads which kind of get me quite uh, riled up, not riled up, get me passionate, mm. actually. Also, uh, and you asked, you know, Jess, are we going looking in the right places? And for a lot of answers, I'm gonna say no, because as a black man, um, I'm of course very you know attuned into certain black issues and I'm looking at the recent stats that show us that black women in this country are 121% more likely to have a stillbirth mm. that Asian women in this country are 66% more likely to have a stillbirth than a woman and the only reason this has really come to light was in a study done last year which said and uh, talking to Professor Elizabeth Draper who was one of the co-authors of the study um, and she said that we suddenly became aware we kept seeing this statistic. It's not a new one, but no one was making any reference to it. And even in their study, they weren't in a place to go, let's do something about it. They were just highlighting it was there. So for me, that any community can be showing this disparity in figures and it not being given any attention. To me, that's a crime of neglect. Um, so I get quite angry about that. And also as a father, talking to so many fathers where no one said, how are you, dad? And just trying to let people understand that men grieve too. And I think that at the risk of generalizing, men do grieve slightly differently because of the expectations put on them by society. And I think men are like volcanoes. If they don't find a way to vent, they will explode. Mm. And with the suicide, the male suicide rates being what they are, it's not something we can ignore. Mm. Uh, despite the fact that the mother, quite rightly, is the patient and the focus, we cannot ignore 
um, fathers and other partners that surround mm. that, mm. I, I think. Well, David, thank you so much for your being so candid. And um, this is what this podcast is all about. Mm. Um, this is esteemed knowledge, so it's privil- privileged knowledge. It, it is um, expert knowledge of the person that holds um, this information. Um, and I, I obviously we're going to explore more with you. But before we um, move on to Hayley, just want to really reassure our listeners um, about NHS England's plan to support or rather improve this disparity, this inequality in health outcomes regarding the data that, that, that David shared. And this is the Embrace data, inequality in health outcomes of Asian, Asian British, Black, Black British and socioeconomically disadvantaged women. And there's a piece of work that I'm leading on nationally to ensure that we can really, number one, understand what's happening, because mm. I don't think we truly understand, and number two, do something about that. And I'm really delighted, it's not enough, but I'm delighted to say in a long-term plan, we have committed resource to an intervention called Continuity of Carer for Black, Asian and ethnic minority women, uh, so that they have Continuity of Carer, 75% of them actually by 2024 and there are many many other things um, that I am doing with key policy leads colleagues at NHS England to really unravel but also intervene reduce the chances of this continuing to happen um, for Asian Asian British black black British and the socio-economically disadvantaged women in England so watch this space it's not fast enough it isn't deep enough but it's better than what we had yesterday so um i don't know whether i'll have an opportunity to say anything more about that because i'm really keen now that we hear from Haley. um i like jess had um my son edward at the jr in um, 2017. In 2013, I'd had our eldest son, Henry, um, and typically I'd had a complicated pregnancy and so was under consultant care. I have something called thrombocytopenia, which is low platelets. Um, And so my consultant would see me all the way through. Um, He'd found I was pregnant in the 2017. I was referred back to him. and then around, at 20 weeks, I'd had a scan and realised that um, Edward had, had died. Um, I then went back into the JR and he was delivered there on the 3rd of October. Um, it transpired that genetically everything was normal and that actually I had slap cheek. And Public Health England were worked some kind of magic and went back through my bloods and discovered that I that they were present in my eight-week booking bloods. But because it's not something that is um, looked for at that stage, it hadn't come up. And so it hadn't been... Whilst I'd had my platelets checked regularly, nothing else had been screened for. Um, and actually, it was the parvovirus that had caused Edward to die. Um, after that, so 11, nearly 11 months ago, um, I had our youngest son, George, at the JR. Um, again, consultant-led care, but I had the same consultant. 
and the same consultant I'd had with Henry and Edward shared Edward's post-mortem report with us. So he kept in really regular contact. Um, he'd actually delivered Henry, so that was that was pretty special. Um, but so you know, Edward was twenty weeks. I was in that limbo land between early pregnancy and a registerable stillbirth. You know, this late miscarriage is is a really sort of between fifteen and twenty four weeks or twenty three weeks is a very grey area. Um, the care I received was as though Edward was full term, which, you know, on reflection was, that's what made a difference. Because he, he is our son. If somebody says to me, how many children have you got? I have three. If somebody says to my mum, how many grandchildren have you got? She said, I've got four. You know, he, he is a part of our family. Mm -hmm. um, and, and actually, that being recognised was was really important um i i had very very special care and i know that people in similar positions haven't been afforded the same luxury again like jess said it's it's quite varied um nationally um i i was i perceive myself as very lucky but i shouldn't that should be yeah, you hear a lot of people say that, don't you? Yeah. That it, that's, we've gone through it, that we're lucky to have had the care that yeah. we had when our children died. Yeah. I remember I driving home from our, our support group, and like we were in the midst of the raw loss that we had, and my wife was driving home, we are looking at each other going, aren't we fortunate? Because we're listening to other people's stories, we were horrified yeah. at the care they got, and it was like, we're, we're driving home, just lost our baby, going, how fortunate we are. Yeah. <laughs> I, absolutely, yeah. I uh, absolutely. You just hear sort of online and and things like that. People have just had such varied experiences, and you know, I I had world class care at the JR, um, and that's so. Since then, I have taken on this co chair role of the uh, Maternity Voices Partnership for Oxfordshire so that I can keep pushing that message sort of at, at trust and CCG level that actually this is what I had and this is this should be the standard but you know from early pregnancy right the way through it should be it should be the standard absolutely so so I, I what we're hearing um, give or take a few um, points, is something about uh, variation uh, across England, and it's unwarranted variation, and this word that we're lucky or, or aren't, we, aren't we fortunate, isn't, aren't we the fortunate ones that we're not like the other person who hasn't had a great experience. And one of the things that we're um, striving to do at NHS England through maternity policy, and particularly as Chief Midwifery Officer, I don't want to leave any stone unturned. So there is something about the things that are hidden under stones. We've got to lift the stones up and we've got to examine these things, understand them, and then act to improve. I think it's, I think it's inequitable and, and, and wrong, actually, that we have healthcare provided in parts of England that is um, 
below the standard that we would like for everybody. The postcode shouldn't matter. Um, maternity care provision should be consistent and the best. World class should be everybody's um, experience, not just because we're fortunate. So what I'd like to ask before I am going to invite Lisa um, uh, and hear some of her reflections about what we've heard so far, but if um, uh, either of you, um, just thinking about the legacy of um, Leo, the legacy of Grace, and the legacy of Edward, what are the key things that you think we can do? Bearing in mind we have maternity policy, better births, we have the long-term plan. What are the key things, and the bereavement pathway and the early pregnancy loss work that is currently being written up? What are the key things you think that we can do to improve the journey of women who have ex women partners and their families that have experienced loss from your perspective so if it's an early pregnancy loss or um, a, a stillbirth loss you're speaking from your own experiences i think i'd i think to sort of umbrella um answer that for me it would come down to this all level training for everyone that is mandatory that is funded that is accessible not and it not be a case that it is just the bereavement lead in a hospital that is trained who also just happens to work only a few days a week because sadly babies die 24 7 um you know we're in a situation where we have even variation in quality of those bereavement workers. Um, but they're not the ones. I saw my bereavement midwife to sign my post-mortem form. That was it. They, they were not the person that was caring for me across three days in hospital. Um, and it's actually when you, when you look at the journey that families take through it all... They're, they're meeting so many different people who do not understand, who are not brave enough to even use the word stillbirth, who don't want to hear that word. They don't understand what it means, and they're working in maternity services, and I, I don't understand how you can, you can work in that role and, and not understand this language. So I think if you've got that level of training across the board... And it goes outside of maternity, it goes to GPs and health visitors and community midwifery and, you know, every single person that could you can come across. Mm -hmm. Then I think you're going to have greater access to healthcare. You're going to have a greater dialogue with, with bereaved families and you're also going to have a greater ability to prevent loss. Because I had, you know, in my pregnancy after loss, I was, I'm not afraid to say, bullshit in demanding my care. I was not going to have anybody turn me away from a maternity assessment unit. So I knew the words that I had to say when I phoned and spoke to the triage receptionist to say, I am coming in. I'm not asking you. I'm coming in. And they would stumble over trying to understand what my history was and how many pregnancies I'd had and how many children that meant I had and getting all confused about the language and what I was saying to them. You can't have that. They're your first port of call. If you want to prevent loss and you also want to support people, Every single person needs to know how to speak to everybody. Um, and I think for me, that's it's what it all comes down to. I can't understand how we are in a position where I know of uh, 
trainee midwives or midwives that have been in the profession for years that are taking annual leave and their own money to be trained in bereavement what is that I don't don't, as a service user I do not understand that I cannot comprehend that Um, I don't know if it happens elsewhere within the NHS outside of maternity services but I, I just that's the one block for me that I don't get Thank you um, for really sharing that um, really poignant uh, view about education and training, about people being nervous about saying words like stillbirth. And we, we can somewhat understand that for people outside of healthcare. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, for those of us that are working in healthcare, that's a hard pill to swallow. And I, I will say it isn't far enough, but we are we have had agreement that there will be um, uh, continuing professional development monies and this is a recent commitment um, from government um, and, and these monies will be given to um, hospitals in England to support um, good education and training so this is just being announced so we need to flesh out what that means to yep. every single person who works in a service but Secondly, we have things like the um, uh, bereavement care pathway and um, other um, support aids that will, number one, raise awareness about how to speak about bereavement. I do think there's something about communication that we haven't quite cracked, and it is linked into listening yeah, and also that, that electronic record so the story doesn't have to be told mm-hmm. um, several times over. But can we hear from um, Dave? It's, it's interesting because I'm gonna, I'm just gonna take a few things you said a little bit further. Go for it. Because <laughs> I don't even like the term stillbirth, uh, and part of that is because people don't take my grief seriously unless mm-hmm. they say my baby died. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, if it's shocking, I don't care. My baby died. Maybe it's a great medical term. And it's a useful medical term. But when I'm talking about it, my baby died. And especially to doctors, I'm gonna say that. Um, because because when we talk about all levels training, I love that phrase, all levels training is important. I have spoken to more midwives than I can count. I, I've lost count. We're in thousands here. Mm-hmm. I can count the amount of doctors and consultants I've spoken to. There was one place I spoke at and there were two consultants in the room. And later on, the organiser of the conference rang me to say, to tell me some of the feedback she'd got. And one of the consultants had said, I wasn't going to come because I didn't think I had anything to learn. But now I have, I'm going to change the way I practice. Um, And unfortunately, that is the overwhelming thing I get back from doctors and consultants. I've had consultants come up to me to apologise for the attitude of herself and other consultants. But having heard me speak, she's going to change the way I practice. What is that? Um, You know, we've grown up hearing about this doctor complex, the God complex. And I don't, you know, the doctors we had, the consultants we had, were incredible. So I'm not going to blanket it, but it's something that keeps coming back to me. That has to change. Um, So when we talk about training, it's not just great training and and regular training. It's also training with a parent voice. Mm -hmm. Because I've sat in many training and heard people passionate about, you know, saving babies' lives slightly miss the point. Yeah. And you yes. kind of need that emotional blink to bring you back in. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, do, you do need to see it from, especially navigating services. I, I don't think people fully understand what it's like to try and navigate healthcare services after a loss. Yeah. Oh, Unless you're the one trying to do it. Yes. Yeah. I want to bring up something else. There's a couple of things we need to... 
Once we leave, uh, one of the things I like about speaking as a parent is making clear to people that the traumatic repercussions of stillbirth go a long, 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 long way. So it's not just an event that you as a medical professional have to deal with. You have things that you need to do which will help mitigate the ongoing trauma. Some of that might be just being a great gatekeeper for services in your local area. You've got to know what's local, yes, what people yeah. can do. If you don't, that's, you know, and I'm sorry, I know you haven't got enough time as it is. We've got to. And the other big thing for me is a phrase that was I heard coined by Stephanie World, who's one of my heroes. She's um, she does the charity Beyond B. She's a midwife who whose baby died and then went straight back into midwifery. Um, so she's kind of my hero. Her uniforms, her cape, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but she um, she called it the void. So the void is that bit where someone has got you in the hospital and said, "I'm sorry," and then you have to go home. Now, for us, it was two hours. For some, it was two days. And we all know the best way to give birth is to be relaxed, is to be in a positive frame of mind. All the... How do you get into that relaxed, positive frame of mind when the corpse of your child is inside your body? How do you eat? How do you sleep? And I don't know what a practitioner can do to help a woman or, or their support mechanism through that time. But I, it's something I always talk about because I think it's something that has to be in practitioner's head. That, that is a horrific time it, it really is so we we found out that edward had died on a sunday which is a notorious void um and then you know we went up to the jr and sort of the wheels were set in motion and then um you know a doctor came in and he just read me this whole list of things that could possibly go wrong from here on in and said, and can you sign there? And my husband just looked at him and went, can we stop? And at that point, the midwife intervened and, you know, kind of redressed the balance. Mm. Um, but you're right, there is that. For him, he was, he was short of time. He was short of time and he was... I've, I've got to get we've got to get the thing moving to avoid the void and then we went back in on the Monday and Edward was then born at half past six on the Tuesday afternoon so you know we're in quite a there's also something about a response to emergency situations about I think there's a certain element of training that's been missed about training uh, people how to cope with emergency situations so for example uh, there was a case in the paper the mail funnily enough um, of a doctor who I think done the right thing but the parents were crazy they you know they you let my child die whatever but what it came down to was in the moment when they had to attend another emergency they hadn't figured out how to reassure the parents they were working with and there's something about and, and dads as well I've talked to dads who've been left standing in a pool of their wife's blood and the wife been rushed off to surgery and no one said anything to them. They're just standing in their wife's blood going, I don't know. And the repercussions of that have been awful. Mm -hmm. There's something about learning how to deal with parents in an emergency situation when you have no time, even if you need the seven yeah. seconds to say. And it's not just in that moment, is it? I, I've spoken a lot about pregnancy after loss and I think that's uh, if, mm. if baby loss as a general, is misunderstood by society and maternity. Pregnancy after loss is... Um, you could do whole day courses on that one. Um, I think that trauma that we experience in the first instance, if that is not dealt with in the most effective way, and you cannot, 
you cannot completely minimise all of that trauma. What I tend to say is you can't make it easy, but you can make it easier. Um, That that is lifelong, and it is going to come to a halt when you're in a pregnancy after loss, having to navigate the same environment, the same people, the same scanning rooms, the same delivery suites. You are literally there all day long for nine months, or eight months in my case, or... At the point that you bail, um, so it, all of that—it's—it's it's the ripple effect. How you look after somebody in that first instance of loss doesn't just change that day for them; it changes the rest of their life. Like that puts you on a trajectory in your grief and in your trauma. Like it's not going to take away what's happened, but it's going it can change how somebody ends up navigating the rest of their life. Um, you know, it has huge repercussions. And I think people people don't understand, like you said, that goodbye moment. I don't think they understand. People change jobs, people leave employment completely, end up in such a vulnerable place. And they can completely uh, take themselves out of healthcare because of how challenging it can be to navigate it. They can just, right, that's it. I'm not, I'm not going there. Um, I, I remember taking a good... Um, three months or so just to book a smear because mm, after yeah. Leo died because I was like one well I clearly know what the result's going to be because that's the way this year's going and two I don't want to go there I don't want to have that conversation yeah. and I think people need to understand the vulnerability that you're dealing with with, with parents and, and how it's shaped from those I, those first few I days I had when I went in back to the JR um, someone said yeah, would you like to go up to the spires, which is on level seven. I <laughs> never want to go back Sorry. to level seven as long as no. I live. And they went, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. And then, as is... The bereavement suite's the, on the same on as the, the maternity level, maternity unit. on the right and the bereavement suite is on the left. Right. Um, you have to walk through those doors <laughs> to get to both. Yeah. And I, was like, I don't ever want to go back up there, but thank you for the kind offer. Um, and then when I went in to have George, I said, can I ask one thing? And she went, absolutely. I said, please don't take me down in the lift on a bed because that is how I got from the de- from the bereavement suite down to the delivery suite with Edward and they she went absolutely she said we'll give you plenty of warning and you can walk down and it was that it was really small but actually to me that person actually taking the time to stop yeah. to mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. and to ask yeah. that eased yeah. that but I have to say, the minute George was born, everything stopped. Yeah. Oh, yes. Everything oh. stopped. Because you're okay now. Because you're okay now. Yeah. yeah. And also, you, you also had to have the... What's the word? You felt able to ask that question. Yes. Mm. So And that, that starts the ball rolling. That yeah. starts the ball rolling of somebody giving you that appropriate care. I know I was that person. I navigated... I made things happen in the JR that I know would not have happened had I not asked. What what worries me is what about the people that who are not able to mm. ask those questions, who do not feel that the services can flex to them mm. because you're giving your tick sheet of how your appointments run through pregnancy and that's how it works. These, this is 36 weeks, this is when we talk about a birth plan. Yeah. Or, or I was there 16 weeks we, talking about a birth plan we, I mean, because my, I needed it then. My wife and I are researchers. I mean, we research. We go, if we're going to hospital, we know what the score is. If anyone tries to frighten us to in a place where you, you can't frighten us because we know what we're talking about. Mm. But what about people who haven't done that research or don't yeah. do research or have yeah. the capacity to do that mm. research? Mm. To emphasise what a subsequent pregnancy is like, I had a vasectomy, local anaesthetic, because I'm that you know, 
<laughs> well um, done. Thanks. That's what I was waiting, that's what I was waiting for. Um, but I had a low anaesthetic. No, I mean, I had a vasectomy. <laughs> because my wife and I didn't think our mental health could survive another pregnancy journey if we happened to fall pregnant. Mm. That's how... In, that's how that's the impact that yeah. loss has on you yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't couldn't face it again we would break down yeah because yeah. it's it's horrific you spend every day waiting for your baby to die yeah 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 and it's kind of a bonus when they when they come and then you stop worrying about the rest of their lives yeah it doesn't stop does it, does it? No. and i can't, um, I can't you know stop. even i can't even read certain things now i can't watch certain programs mm. i can't it's um you know, I was playing, uh, someone wanted to play Cards Against Humanity, you know the game? Mm, oh, yes. And the uh, first card I picked said dead babies on it. I was like, wow, okay, that was... Yeah, it's there everywhere. Yeah. And I think that's why when I talk about that all levels training, that's why health visitors need to be looped in. Absolutely. And community midwives, and, you know, you talk about continuity of care, and I actually had the same midwife through my pregnancy with Eli and, to an extent, postnatally, but that didn't actually give me the care I needed. Like, it's not a silver bullet. Mm. If that, that person who's giving you that continuous care isn't listening to you, it's, you might as well have a different person every appointment. We had an amazing experience. With, our, with Alyssa, our last one, the continuum care was amazing, absolutely amazing. Because um, they also understood that we wanted minimum intervention at home and we'd mm. figured out how we were doing it. And they respected that and they, they mm. kept to watch. Um, they were skilled enough to know what to watch for, so they stepped back and let's do it. Uh, immediately, Kira, the one immediately after Grace, um, we decided we were going to do um, hypnobirthing, help release, you know, reduce the anxiety. And the midwives that came, because again, home birth, obviously had no experience of hypnobirthing and managed to ruin that experience because obviously they were worried about a positive outcome after the last one but in worrying about it they compromised the quality of the birth experience mm -hmm. so there's a lot of things and I understand that uh, that need but there's a lot of things there's so many things to balance and I, as we talk I think it all comes back to training yeah <laughs> it does education training yeah. um is key but but also there is something about um, core values and relationship mm -hmm. because the outcomes of continuity of care are, um, based on the Cochrane review you get improved outcomes because there is relational continuity and a part of that is informational and management continuity and you know so that there is a that there is that special relationship that is predicated on a relationship that will ensure that if the midwife wasn't skilled in hypnobirthing, that midwife, be that male or female, could understand a little bit about it and know what to say, what to do when, so that um, journey um, was as good as it could be. And similarly with decisions um, that are being made um, and having to repeat stories over and over again, continuity of care mm -hmm. with a relationship should really balance all that out. So you're, you're absolutely right. Even with an intervention like continuity of care, this is why we have um, the support from Health Education England, who have given us a huge sum of money to help to train midwives to work in a continuity of care model. We're not just saying continuity, here you go, but actually there's education and training required mm -hmm. to be able to work that model. So you have the good outcomes that you need. So we've we've heard um, some really candid um, and poignant accounts from um, our key guest today. Um, 
really talking from the perspective of the legacy of their children. Um, and I'm going to say the names again, Leo, Grace and Edward. And um, what I'd like to do now is to maybe um, ask Lisa if um, you've got any pearls of wisdom having listened to these great accounts. And, and I, I'm going to emphasise again, this is expert knowledge because it belongs to the person who has shared it. So what are we going to do, um, Lisa, at NHS England to capture some of this narrative so that the journey that we have for the remainder of Better Births implementation, which is two years, and the long-term plan, which is 10 years, to truly be able to say um, to our guests, because of the legacy of their children, that we can hand on heart say that we have the best care, um, including bereavement care for women and their families in England. Okay, thank you, Jackie. Um, so first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for your generosity and your clear commitment in sharing your stories so that we can do our best to make it as good as possible for other parents going through similar experiences to you. Um, I think it's really important you t touched on that disparity um, issue across some communities and, and geographical areas and we need to really make sure that we go away and, and do something about that. Um, the other things that really have come through for me in, in the things that you've shared is this need for time and time to listen, to really hear your stories. And um, it, it, it feels right to call you experts by experience, as difficult as that is, because I would much prefer you hadn't had those experiences, but that you are experts in that in those experiences and we need to listen to your expertise um, and value your generosity in sharing them. Um, I think one of the things that's come through to me as well is um, one of the key aspects of Better Births is personalised care alongside continuity of carer, that people caring for um, families having babies and I really want to emphasise we've talked a lot about women and their partners but actually what we think about outside of maternity is people creating families um, and that means that we have generally two key people in this arena rather than in maternity we often talk about the woman and a partner or a, or a, um, a birth partner with them but actually the focus on creating families and caring well for families during that process um, seems to be really important. And in, that, in the way that we provide personalised care, we do so in a trauma-informed way and be able to ask what matters to you. So Hayley, what mattered to you? One of the things that I heard was, was the lift, not going yeah. in the lift. And actually nobody would have said to you in preparing for that birth experience, now, is there something about the lift, Hayley? Yeah. But, but somebody gave you space to say, anything we need to make sure that we do or don't do this yeah. time. And you were able to say, yes, this thing is really important to me, amongst potentially lots of other things that were really important to you about that experience. So I think for, for me, there's something about making sure that we continue to have space for hearing your voices and other people's voices and and hearing you as uh, experts by experience and then making sure that we directly feed 
your wisdom into what's happening. So we talk about personalised care, not just because it's good for people, but because it can be life changing. It can change experiences after um, a loss. Um, and the other one of the other key things I heard you talk about was knowing what to ask for next time. And I think one of the things we need to get better at is access to evidence based information for people having maternity journeys so that people can do that first time round and potentially for the first experience know how the system works know what they can expect to happen in an understandable format yes in a really understandable format that's easy to access whoever you are that you that you can then have those choice conversations in pregnancy and be cared for by people who really understand what matters to you during this process and I can't not talk about the things uh, that have to under, underpin the care that is given in our maternity services. And I probably spent yesterday thinking about, most of yesterday thinking about this, uh, just because I feel like being in your space means I need to be a bit brave and a bit vulnerable about trying to use the right language with you and trying to ensure there's no re-traumatisation for you guys sharing your stories and yet actually all that's needed is open hearts and open ears and we just sit around the table together and listen to each other's perspective and work together to to make maternity care the best it can be so huge thank you for me and lots that we can take away and, and make sure that other people making key decisions in our maternity care here so thank you thank you thank you lisa so i'm going to give um, the final word to our guests in terms of you, you've given us lots of pearls of wisdom actually and spoken really candidly which I'm delighted about but what is the one if there is it's difficult isn't it if there's one key <laughs> message that you would like to end this podcast on what would it be and we're gonna um, Paul Jess is to my left so we keep on going <laughs> to Jess first maybe I should go to Haley first actually but um I think, for me, I think for me, it would be to use my child's name. That, that for me, is, is it. Fantastic. That is it. Thank you. David? I was actually going to thank you for saying their names twice, yeah. loudly and clearly. Yeah. That was lovely. For me, it's normalise my dead baby. Um, what would you say about a live baby? Say the same thing about my dead baby. Mm -hmm. Oh, look at the fingers. Who's, who would get the fingers? Yeah. yeah, obviously dad's fingers. Do you know what I mean? You can do that. That's what we want. Give up in the moment where we have lost all power and normality, give us a touch back. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic. Great. I agree. I think it would be the word engage. Um, like you said, Lisa, I think a lot of people echo that. Um, need or that uh, fear with engaging with bereaved parents um we are just people um there's nothing fearful about us we are just people that have gone through something that you know is couldn't imagine anything worse level uh, of experience but if people are prepared to actually sit alongside and listen and hear then across society but also maternity services it will improve for everybody um so like david said before you know if you're doing training there has to be a parent voice there you there's nothing more powerful than that i don't think right. 
Thank you so much. So we're going to conclude the podcast now and uh, the parents of Leo, Grace, Edward and um, if James Tickham were here, he'd also mention Joshua. As I said at the start of the podcast, he couldn't be here today. Um, but three very brave parents in the room helping us to navigate this what is at the moment appears to be a little bit of a complex journey for getting this right for families who use maternity services in England but in true JDB spirit that's me yes we can and yes we will thank you very much thank you